Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by Albasti Ecruel Dubai. Welcome to the Luck on Sunday podcast, a weekly audio digest of all the best bits of Luck on Sunday, free to air every Sunday from nine o'clock that brings you the best guests and insight from around the racing world. Delighted to say that my first guest uh, this week has made a habit of being in a seat rather like this. That's after a 30-year career in the betting industry as a clerk, a bookmaker's clerk, as an SP returner. But his interests are many and varied. He's something of an expert on all matters musical. He's a little bit of a polymath in truth. I'm delighted to welcome him to the show for the first time. He is the man who authored the excellent Skint Mob, Tales from the Betting Ring, which has had pride of place over my left shoulder for the last few weeks. Simon Knott. Simon, great to have you with us. Thanks very much for having me. I was saying, you, you've made something of a, a reputation doing something not entirely dissimilar from what, what I'm doing now. And indeed, we've, we've reversed roles in the past, and I, I enjoyed it very much. How did it all come about? You do a series called Betting Tales for, uh, for Star Sports. Yeah, betting people. Um, basically, it's been the boss, boss of Star Sports' idea. Um, the first one we did, we got Neil Channing, who Ben knew, and he said, you know, just take your camera along and talk to Neil and see... Um, you know, just get some stories from him and we'll put it online and see how it goes. And it um, absolutely flew. We couldn't believe how many people watched it to begin with. So then the idea was sort of sparked. So since then, we've done over 120 interviews with all sorts of people in the betting industry, not just, you know, bookmakers, professional gamblers, jockeys, photographers. And it's been, I've loved it. Fantastic to, to meet so many interesting people. And Neil will be along later on, so you'll be in good company. Yeah, he was the one that started it all. Thanks, Neil. And where did it all start for you? Uh, for me, I started working in the racing industry in 1989 on course with a bookmaker called Jack Lynn, and uh, just working as a floor man. In the old days, you had to have somebody that was the eyes and ears of the bookies, uh, so you stand in front of the joint and watch the prices and go and have hedge bets if you needed them. If they laid a big one, you'd go and have a bet back. Fantastic. I absolutely loved it. Brilliant fun. So how old were you then? 24. And what kind of buzz was it as a young man? in the betting ring in those days? Well, it was very daunting to begin with. Luckily, I'd been going racing on and off for a few years before, so I knew roughly what to do. And somebody in the local pub had taught me tic-tac and a bit of slang, because you use the slang a lot just because you didn't want the punters to know what you were saying. So if you said the six to four is going, all the punters would know. But if you said half arm is going or half arm on the thumb, that sort of thing, and running around, it was just the whole betting ring was a real buzz. People running around everywhere, money flying about, bets called in on credit. All the trade bets for credit bets, you just call in over the top of the punt and say, oh, it's just, I used to love it every single day of it, every minute. And, and when do you think that that sense of the betting ring being a, a lively, vibrant, vital place, when did you feel that start to ebb away a little bit? Well, to be, it started really when we started using walkie-talkies. So the tic-tacs that were still there when I started started to disappear. That was the first thing. But then, of course, the betting exchanges no need for a floor man, all the bookmakers were hedging. They weren't hedging with each other anymore, which mm -hmm. then weakened the, the strength of the betting ring a lot, which is a real shame. It's the worst thing that ever happened, really. And what about the characters within the betting ring where you were working at the time? Because you were fundamentally based in the, in the southwest and yep. west country, yep. weren't you? Oh, fantastic. But, you know, bookmakers, the, the punters, the those characters everywhere. I mean, you know, especially the professional punters used to go racing, and they were just, most of them had to be a character to be that sort of person anyway. So there was nicknames for everybody, you know, it was, it was, yeah, it was you know, terrific. Who do you remember most clearly from those days? Well, most clearly would have been my old boss, Jack Lynn. I mean, he, had a, he was a, a D-Day veteran. He had a big sort of white moustache and he used to uh, use language that couldn't be used on this show. But, you know, real, real character and, you know, there were just many of them. Was it a love of racing before then as a child that made this a, a dream job for you? I've got to be honest, I got into racing because I got into betting. When I was first old enough to drink, the pub 
was right next door to a William Mill betting shop. So we used to, I used to people come in and say, I've had a Yankee or I've won five quid. And I think, oh, this is quite handy. You know, just go in that shop and come out and, and uh, get a bit of extra beer money. So I initially, and they had the, the old streamers down over the door. So it was that sort of forbidden place, you know. And uh, I got into that. I loved all that. And it was the, you know, you only had the speaker at the time. So the mystery of what was at the other end of the speaker, you saw a little bit on the TV. But, you know, that I, I got into that seedy sort of betting shop thing. And then I wanted to go racing. And first I went racing was Cheltenham, the, the Mackerson in uh, 83. And I was absolutely, I stood down with the bookies. I just could not believe what was happening. You know, just the buzz. I just fell in love with it immediately. And I never stopped. 83 Mackerson, Cheltenham. Yeah, I can't remember who won it. But I do remember everything about, you know, just the, the I just... Was, I just loved it, the buzz of it, the atmosphere, the, the money flying around, the people rushing. It's just, I don't know, I can't describe how much I was hooked. Uh, the, the adre- the, the adre- in the betting ring, just in that. Yeah, I can feel it now, just talking about it. It's like, I just loved it, and I've loved it ever since. So going back at 24 to actually work in the oh, game. Yeah, very nervous the first day, but the first bet we had, somebody came in to our bookie, and he, and he, he put four to five up, somebody came in with 500 quid. And he was, uh, you know, he wasn't a massive bookie. And I said, it's nine to ten up there, which is a very unusual price mm. to be up at the time. Eddie Baxter put up nine to ten. So my boss hopped off his stool, straight across, had the monkey back on, cop 50 quid. And Jack said, you've earned your money. The first words you spoke in, you're on the firm. So that was that. First, first thing I said to him, it's nine to ten up there. And that was that. <laughs> Does it occur to you when you're telling stories about the betting ring and becoming quite passionate about it? And, you know, I can sense the enthusiasm and passion for for gambling from you and from what it all means and do you feel that, that we as a, a sport now are, are frightened of that yes i think it's be- it's become like a dirty word you know that the sport revolves around betting and it wasn't a bad thing i mean it wasn't so much the gambling i used to bet two quids it was just the just the whole thing of it but the energy of it yeah the energy. Just the, just the, as soon as you started talking about that first yeah, day i could feel the yeah, energy yeah yeah and, and you know, it's not a, you know, it, obviously these days you've got to be careful with online. It's so much easier to come home from the pub drunk, sit on your phone and spend 500 quid playing blackjack or something like that. You know, but actually in the betting ring itself, you wouldn't take bets off of youngsters. You know, the, it's, it, was, it was still well regulated. The bookmakers regulated everything and everything was based on honesty. If I called in an even thousand pound bet, which wasn't very usual for my boss, that was just done. They wrote it in the book with a ring, Jack Lynn, thousand pound. And if it won... We went to draw. If you lost, they paid. There was, that was the thing that I loved as well. Everything was on trust. If you weren't an honest person, then you didn't have a future in the better ring. That was it. You know, honesty was, your, was the main credentials you needed to get on in the, in the business. And that was what I loved as well. It, was, it wasn't the betting. It wasn't, I never bet big. I still don't now. But it's just that, you know, and that, that, I still try and promote the betting ring as much as I can. Obviously, it's not like it was. The big meetings, it still is a bit. But, you know... Those, I was very lucky to get the tail end of the, the wonderful part of it, and I was just so passionate about it. Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by Albasti at Cruel Dubai. Uh, a leisurely canter. Sometimes I'll be pressing them to go a little quicker. Through yesterday's racing and all the news events of the week, in company not only of Simon Knott, who's been with, with, with for the first half an hour of the programme, I'm sure he'll in, agree with a very engaging guest, but he's uh, alongside his old sparring partner, Neil Channing, and our regular on Luck on Sunday, but making your first appearance this uh, season, Lizzie Kelly. Good to see you, Lizzie. Yes, thank you for having me again. How's it all going? Uh, yeah, good. Um, it's been a bit of a quiet year this year, but... Um, we're in a bit of an in-between season anyway with old horses having gone out and young horses sort of not quite ready to you know, go to war yet. So um, there's lots to look forward to. Who is your star, if you like, going into the next few weeks? Who is going to carry you through Cheltenham, Maintree, Punchestown and beyond? Um, I mean, Mum's got a lot of really nice horses. So there's Eric LaRouge, mm-hmm. um, who I won on l- the last day. Um, Monsieur Lecoq, who will probably come back down and grade um, and up in trip um, after his Irish champion hurdle um, attempt. And a really nice filly that I really like called Gilise Macarlo, but things just aren't quite going her way at the moment so she's one to look forward to for sure 
Well, that's three. Yeah. And I only asked you for one. I know, so that's, I know. She's got really <laughs> nice good. horses. So, that's yeah, good. And, and youngsters coming up behind as well. Yeah, yeah. Uh, two Balcos, uh, Coastal Path, um, something else I can never remember the sire of, but all three-year-olds and, you know, we'll all either run in the spring or the autumn. So, yeah, they're, they're really exciting. And from your own perspective, you are still as committed to doing exactly the same job that you have been doing very effectively for the last two or three years? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm still down there four days a week. Um, the rest of the time I actually spent riding out for Archie Watson, which is um, different but keeps me sharp. Um, and I enjoy riding young horses anyway. So, mm. yes, it's... Um, it's a nice life, and, and I'm enjoying it. And some of those super sharp two-year-olds of Archie's will definitely keep you on your toes. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I'm not riding anything that's too spectacular. I do only ride um, the nice ones, but um, the ni nice, quiet ones, I mean. But, yeah, it's enjoyable. So, overall, you feel like you're winning? Yeah, definitely. Good. I, I don't think that... I think I had a very, like, very, very good four years, and just because this year hasn't been as good as the previous four doesn't mean that it's not a good year. You're winning as well, aren't you, Neil Channing? You're always winning. I don't know about that. Actually, I, I ran into Lizzie on the way in, and I was thinking, oh, God, let me quickly think of a winner that Lizzie's had recently. And all I could think of was that she'd fallen off a few before Christmas. Not fallen off. No, 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 I didn't mean that in that bad way. She'd come off. They, they, they'd thrown her off. They, whatever. She'd fallen. And I, I, anyway... Hopefully there not. Is That's no, not happening there for There is Archie no Watson. spade sharp enough for you to dig yourself. <laughs> <laughs> I did finally back a winner uh, this year, yesterday, so that's good. Um, no, I finished the year last year in quite good form, actually. I, um, I found a couple of people that seemed to be able to get bits on that we were able to work together quite well. So slightly less tramping around the shops. So uh, that's good fun. And it, it struck me that you'd been an interesting subject as Simon's first ever guest on on betting people mm. because your backgrounds essentially are pretty different in terms of the way you've approached this, the science of, of betting or the art of betting, whichever way you like. It's funny, account. actually, because I couldn't believe when Simon said... He contacted me about the betting people there and I knew Star Sports because I know Ben Keith uh, from years ago. And... Um, I couldn't believe we'd never met before. Like I, when I left uni, I, the first thing I did was, you know, go racing in the southwest literally every day. I, if it wasn't Exeter, it was Chepstow or Bath or Wincanton or Taunton, and we we must have been on the same race course in the same betting ring, you know, dozens and dozens and dozens of times without ever speaking. So I don't know why that was. But, you were probably uh, having too big a bets for my boss, I imagine. I don't know. I was, <laughs> I, I was probably dodging around trying to trying to get a few quid. But uh, yeah, because you, yeah. you and Ben Keith have an association that goes back. Some he, time. he was he 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 wrote to me when I worked at City Index, which was a, the, the first uh, spread betting company, the forerunner of Sporting Index, um, and. Um, yeah, he wrote to me and said, I, 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 uh, I, uh, my name's Ben Keith, I'm quite interested in doing one of two jobs. Uh, I either want to be the Prime Minister or the biggest bookmaker in the country. Um, I've written to Number 10 and they've told me they're, they're not available for uh, work experience, uh, which I've got coming up from my school and I need to do a week somewhere. Uh, can I come and work for you? And I wrote back and said, um, I mean, you know, it shows how long ago it was. We were doing writing. Um, I wrote back and said, uh, I'm afraid, uh, you know, we have a license and, you know, you're only 16 and you have to be 18 to work uh, in a betting environment. Uh, come back to me when you're 18. Anyway, two years later, the woman in reception buzzed up and said, there's a, there's a bloke here, he says he's come to see you. And uh, I said, well, I don't know what that is, send him up. And it was him, and he just turned up. And, uh, yeah, I said, right, OK, you've got to price up all those races at Bristol Dogs to 118. I said, how much money have you got on you? And he said, 28 quid. And I said, OK, well, you're laying to lose 28 quid on any of the races. And he did, and uh, that, that was, yeah, that was it. We... Uh, we had a bit of fun and games. Wow. But yeah, yeah, so I've known him a long time, really. It struck me from his <clears> initial <throat> application that had he done that now and said, I either want to be 
Prime Minister. He'd be or, working for Dominic Cummings. He'd be Cummings. working for Dominic yeah, Cummings, yeah, exactly, exactly yeah. the sort of person <laughs> yeah. that Dominic Cummings he'd be, he'd be, is after. Yeah, yeah, no, the yeah, right politics, I think, as well, yeah, yeah. Enough of a lunatic for Dominic Cummings, probably, yeah. Let's at the mention of Dominic Cummings twice in the program move things, <laughs> moves things nicely on <laughs> to yesterday, which in many respects <clears throat> was quite a challenge to watch. There was the real devastation for those people involved with Catchy, enormously popular horse mm. who, who died at, at Lingfield, and what pleasure he's given so many people over the years. That really was so sad, and our thoughts very much with his owner, trainer, regular rider and, and groom and connections. And then there was a pretty challenging edition of the Grade 1 at Ascot yesterday, thankfully from which both surname and Traffic Fluid emerged relatively unscathed and certainly it didn't look good for surname and it's been very extensively chronicled on the front of today's Racing Post. His season is over, though his, his life remains intact, which is clearly a very good thing. Uh, the race went to riders on the storm for the Twist and Davis team, who continue to have a fine season. But it was, in many respects, Lizzie, it was a quite, quite a hard day's racing to watch, really. Yeah, I think it's um, always difficult when you have a horse that... Um, well, any horse that is liked by the sort of racing public um, then either um, has a fatality or a crashing fall like surname yesterday... Mm. I think it. you then prioritise the outcomes, don't you? I think surname getting up was probably, you know, the biggest round of applause at Ascot yesterday. Um, you know, it's, it's absolutely, you know, devastating and such a horrifying time when it does go wrong. Um, you know, I'm sure they'll be absolutely delighted and, and I would have thought that the fact that he's out for the rest of the season sort of pales into insignificance really, mm. you know, the fact that he's actually got on the lorry and gone home is is the result that, they, that, that we wanted yesterday really The winner of the race, Riders on the Storm may yet not have won the race if Traffic Fluid hadn't come down at the final fence all that being said He's a, a very useful horse. He continues to progress through the ranks. He's another fine advertisement for the incredibly successful season being enjoyed by Nigel Twist and Davis, much of which has been aided by son Sam, who joins us on the line now. Sam, good morning. Good morning. An extraordinary dramatic day at Ascot yesterday. You very much came out the, the right side of it. How's Riders on the Storm this morning? Um, best off, um, speaking to the trainer, but what he told me is that um, he's one. Um, they had him obviously very fit and well for yesterday and obviously with the news that everyone's up and okay is the main thing and he's also and um, we're trying to get him freshened up and ready for the ride there. Because so much has been written about the race that doesn't actually concern the running of it or the result, how was it as a race to, to ride in? What did you make of it as a whole? It was a very, very honest test. Um, the kind of way I was approaching it yesterday was kind of follow surname round and if we were good enough we'd have a go from turning in but um, as you know with Dad he, he doesn't like he likes to wear his heart on his sleeve and he was keen we went and had a go and were positive so he wanted us to go and have a go at surname um, down the side and obviously uh, not leave it to be too much of a kind of a, a freebie for him so um, we weren't positive and you get a little bit tired later on but nice that he's gone and got the job done And were you quite surprised to see to see surname empty that bit or or had you sort of anticipated that that could be the case after what you've seen at Kempton? Yeah, well, obviously it, it was an interesting one because um, he went really, really well around Asuka. He'd previously beat some obviously incredibly smart horses around there as in like political and such a year before and I rode in that race and the kind of the way he jumped out and picked up and turned in and took off um, was just right because I'm doing the same again so I didn't really want to give him an inch and kind of really was really, really over the back um, not many horses without jump surname, that's for sure, and kind of winged one past him. And that's probably when I was thinking, right, here we go. But doing that. So, um, main thing is he's all up safe and sound. He's jumped last nice year. Um, you've got to enjoy the great ones. At the same time, you'd like everything to have gone smoothly for everyone else as well. Uh, do you think your horse will be okay to to run in four or five weeks' time after after what he had to do yesterday? Yeah, well, obviously the great ones, you've got to have them very fit, very ready, and 
Um, so I think Dad did a great job in having him very ready for tomorrow yesterday. Um, then going forward now is obviously trying and impressing up, get him as well as we can. And um, obviously the Ryanair's a lovely race for him. Do you think ground conditions are crucial to him either way? Do you think he either wants it soft or good, or, or is he fairly adaptable? I'd say he's fairly adaptable. We've not had him um, all that long. We're very lucky that we kind of got him um, at the right time. Um, Tom Taft did a fantastic job with him. We're just very lucky to have him now. So um, we're still learning about the horse. He was obviously a little bit um, trickier ride yesterday than he has been in the past. Um, we're kind of hanging out, but that could well be just uh, with the extremes of the wind and the ground and such. So um, we're still learning. and It's a journey we're enjoying. I have to tip my hat to your brother Willie as well because I know he put quite a bit of the groundwork into into this horse when when he first came to you sent to you by Carl Hinchy. Yeah, obviously as well, not many people probably know that um, Willie Willie and uh, Ryan Hatch are in business together at Twist and Dave Setquine and they operate out of my mum's yard and they do a fantastic job and obviously breaking a lot of Dad's young horses. They have a lot of Carl um, Hinchy's and Mark Scott's young stock and. Uh, they obviously hit pre-trained uh, riders and just thought that he suited our kind of routine well and obviously they train on um, dad's gallops and what what they do so um, they felt he'd, he'd gone, gone into the routine well and then when he went down to dad's he obviously slotted in really nicely so um, it's a big team effort and um, obviously we, we, we all work together we have a lot of fun between us all and it, it is lovely when it goes to play. The Grand National of course is a race that uh, your father Nigel will always be synonymous with. He's had great success in the race, and another strong entry this time. And after yesterday, I would imagine that that Ballyoptic is now top of the pile, isn't he? Yeah, we've set seven in it. Um, obviously, we thought well, previously um, before entering the race, we thought one forty-four. Obviously, a lot of ours in, but um, looking like it's going to be incredibly tough. Um, we'd love to see obviously Cogri in the race to see if he's really deserving. Going to be tricky for him to get in, and obviously Bradley Optic going around there like he did yesterday. Jump beautifully, got into a great rhythm, um, powered out through the line, and you know being obviously a second Scottish national second that he stays well. So it is a race that will suit him, and we've got the experience in jumping around the beach. So hopefully it'll work out for him. Well, of course now officially, and I'm going to talk to Martin Greenwood in a minute. He's theoretically got one of the best chances in the race. I know. Yeah, she's been. I think he's slashed from 15 to 25. Now. Um, something along those lines, but he's a horse you definitely look forward to running in the race. Um, previously, his jumping hadn't always held up the best, and he wasn't going too badly in the race last year. And um, obviously, I hope now with that bit, bit that year on that boat, a little bit more experience, then it could, could be his turn. But um, I imagine there's 39 others that are running the race that we're thinking they've got similar as good a chance. I mean, do you think you'll end up riding him? It's a tricky one. Um, in the day, there's a lot of, lot of water to go under the bridge between now and then, but um, he's definitely the standout of ours now. Um, it would be interesting to see if like, the Cogri and stuff get in, because in the day, Cogri relishes a national um, second as well. Um, so you know he stays and jumps well, but yeah, he's the obvious one that stands out. He's got that, that what you need nowadays for national, a touch of class, and his jumping's coming together, and he's starting to work it all out. So um, we can pray and dream that it, that it might work out. Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by Albasti at Cruel, Dubai. The Grand National trial yesterday took place at Haydock Park and the winner will not get into the Grand National, but he is a, a horse who has given Alex Hales his biggest success of the season and one of his biggest successes of his career and it's been an excellent season for the trainer as well. A horse called Smooth Stepper. Um, I didn't see it coming, Neil, but it was that kind of day at Haydock yesterday and look at the ground. Yeah, no, I'm, well, I mean, obviously, I expect Kirk can put a couple of inches down beforehand just to take the sting out of it. But uh, um, no, it looked like, to me, the form looks more like a kind of Midlands national trial, presumably. Uh, I mean, Yala Inki is a very admirable horse, but uh, that gives you a sort of a pretty good solid yardstick to the form because that's so solid and consistent. Uh, it's hard to see Yala Inki really uh, finding enough, to, uh, you know, weight-wise to win a Grand National. But uh, Paul Nichols uh, is mad keen on him. Uh, I mean, it's, it, it, it's not a bad horse to own, is it? I mean, he, he does run his race every single time it appears and has a chance. Uh, but uh, I, I would have said, you know, the winners 
proper heavy ground horse, stays all day, Utoxeter next, I would have thought. But uh, this was this was pretty brutal stuff, wasn't it, Lizzie? I thought that this ride from Harry Bannister was absolutely amazing. Um, the fact that he lost his position and he had to creep and creep and creep. And, you know, we're here, we're a furlong to go, and he's still not quite there. You know, I thought it was, you know, an amazing ride um, and clever given the ground and, you know, not to rush back into the race and just have some patience. Um, and he's won it really well in the end. Um, and Richard Hobson's having an amazing season. Mm, mm, um, yeah. And that horse has run a really good race mm. as well. So, you know, they've beaten the rest of them by a long way. Um, and I thought that, you know, it was it, as... Normally, I don't really enjoy watching Haydock races like this, but I did enjoy Because, like, I was thinking that during Ascot, I was definitely thinking, "Oh God, should this have really been on? This is Mm. not brilliant." You know, something could die here. Mm. I didn't really think that at Haydock. I was just like, "Yeah, it's just like Saturday at Haydock. They're underwater." (laughs) That's because you're Uh, used to seeing them paddling. Yeah, yeah, but also, I suppose a flatter track. I don't know. It just kind of felt like they did finish quite strung out. But yeah, uh, I think if you're going, it was a bit scary. If you're going to Haydock, you know what you're getting. So you're not exactly going to be taking your good ground horses to Haydock, are Mm. you? So the horses that are there, you know, you would have thought will handle it because everybody knows what Haydock's like. So. No, I thought it was a lovely race to watch, and I really enjoyed it. I mean, I kind of enjoyed all the racing yesterday, but Ascot, it definitely had the... There was a little bit in the back of my mind of, you know, it was a bit of a horror film, really. Didn't you? I mean, you know, on this programme, there's quite a lot of discussion about, you know, the persuader, the the pro-cush, I think they call the it weird, sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> and and about how dreadful that can look and everything. That was way worse, wasn't it? Some mm. of the I must confess I I find I was see, really surprised the racing was on. Horses oh. like strung out for miles and pl- ploughing through heavy mm. ground. Certainly to the eye, I I find it less appealing to the eye than the use of the whip. But there you go, that's just a personal thing. Not everyone would. Yeah, I think it's really difficult, isn't it? Because how I I think that you're right. You know, I don't think it looks great. But then with the fact that each participant will have a different opinion, you know, some people will still want to run. Mm. Some people won't. And some people think it looks awful. And some people want to have that sort of ground for their horses. So I don't think it's something that can be regulated. Do you think, I mean, you've ridden a lot of horses who go well on, on soft ground, but... Do you think there are any horses who actually relish grounders testing as it was yesterday at Ascot and Haydock, or is it simply a case that they mind it less than than the others? I think there's always the case that if you're running an agri-part, for example, you know that you're going to handle the ground better than everybody else. So, you know, you, you, you want it to be as bad as it can be before they actually call it off. You know, you want it to be that bad. In the same way like that, you know, like we were saying, you know, so... If we'd gone to Ascot yesterday with a horse like that and it had been abandoned, we'd have been devastated. But it's, it's just, it's very difficult. I, th- I think that some horses do love it, you know. I think they'd love that sort of ground and they'll just keep going. Um, and that's why I don't think you could ever really get to a point where you say, well, of course, they do get to a point where they say, like, this is so bad that we can't run on it. But I think... Now, at this point, you could only really trust the race courses. Well, a lot of it yesterday was was the wind, wasn't it, Ascot? Like, I mean, it was, yeah. you know, they when they turned and ran into that wind, th- that looked properly it was, grueling. Yeah, it was I interesting. Think the, the ground wasn't, like, super terrible or anything. It was like, interesting sure to hear Sam just now saying, yeah. you know, that something he was saying, you know, I'm not quite sure why he was hanging, it could have been the wind. You yeah, know, obviously, yeah, do- yeah. you know, it does have an effect. Um, even if you're riding out at home and the rain's coming down too mm. hard, you know, horses will turn their heads away from the rain. So really interesting to hear Sam. And I think I know where he means, you know, when they're going mm. sort of down towards Swindley Bottom yes. there, mm, yeah. the horse was obviously twisted and actually, you know, didn't jump those fences quite so well because he wasn't actually looking at them. Mm. You know, he was looking over the rail. So I don't know. I mean, it's got to have a huge effect, really. From a punting point of view, you said you had a winning day yesterday, which was interesting given how crazy the conditions were. Simon, do you find when you're 
you're on a betting ring and you get a day like that where you're borderline abandoned, punters start to pull back a bit, or do people not really care? They just get stuck in like they always would. Well, these days they they tend to stay at, <clears throat> stay out of the rain. That's the problem. There's so many other ways they can bet. In the old days, if they were there, they'd still they would come out in the rain. But these days they can sit in the bar with their phone. There's so many different options. So another thing the bookmakers are up against on course. You know, why would they come out in the pouring rain when they can bet on their phone and in the dry and having a pint. Well, hopefully, if you were on your phone yesterday in the dry having a pint, you were backing Emmett on. Plenty of, plenty of you did by the looks of the market move because he stormed back to form with a very impressive win in the Rendlesham hurdle at Haydock Park for Warren Greatrex and Gavin Sheehan. Gavin Sheehan, luck on Sunday guest last week and talking about his uh, enduring relationship with the, with the trainer. And this will have given him an awful, an awful lot of pleasure. You talk about Harry Bannister's ride being the ride of the day, Lizzie. I thought this went pretty close, particularly the way he he drilled him up the inner to get the pole position up the straight round this very sharp track. Yeah, I think um, Haydock does slightly lend itself to be to, to jockeys being able to just slip up the inner, but on on in this particular place. Um, but yeah, I mean it was cool as a cucumber wasn't it and um he just got tightened up there but he wasn't having any of it he, he was going for that gap no brave very brave ride and you know i think that i think obviously when you ride when you're when things are going well you ride with such confidence um and i think you could really see that here he obviously has you know faith in the horse and but confidence in his own ability and everything just went right at the right time i thought it was a lovely ride i just think this is a horse who adds another Another little spice to the staying hurdle Definitely, mix. yeah. I mean, I, I, I mean, I can't remember the last year that I didn't have an each way bet in the staying hurdle, uh, and this has got to be top of my shortlist. Really, I mean, it's very lightly raced, and that run at Cheltenham was quite disappointing, uh, you know. But I think it was five to two there. Uh, the winner of the race, um, uh, God, I can't think of his name now. Um, you think of Somerville Boy? Somerville Boy, yeah. I mean, I, I think he was like eight to one to win that race, and this was five to two. Uh, obviously, he's run no race at Cheltenham. Well, that you was know, his comeback you, off a long absence. Yeah, of course. Yes, yeah. I, I understand. There's a perfectly reasonable excuse for it. But if you kind of draw a line through that and say, you know, I mean, they're both 14s uh, each way, you know, against Paisley Park. I'd much rather be on Emerton, I think. And prior to yesterday, his signature performance had been second to champ in the three-mile novice hurdle yeah, at Aintree, which is pretty good form. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Great form, yeah. Um, how do you see Paisley Park and the, and the Sayers hurdle? Is it simply a formality? Is he, does he just have to turn up in, in his usual form and, and nothing can beat him? I mean, I definitely don't think it's a formality. Um, but I think, as you know, he, he is very good. Um, and I think that their arrest have got something to find to, to, to beat him. So, yeah, I, I really like Paisley Park. Lovely horse. It looks as though Emma Tom, though, will be an opponent to him, provided he's come out of that race OK. The man to tell us is Warren Greatrex, who joins us on the line now. Morning, Warren. Morning, Nick. How are you? Very well, thanks. Well done yesterday. How's Emma Tom? Yeah, he's good as gold, yeah. Uh, bounced out this morning. All good. That must have been very pleasing to see yesterday. Uh, do you think the Cheltenham run just blew the cobwebs away? I think it did. Um, I sort of... It's easy in hindsight, but I, I blame myself a bit. Um, he'd obviously had an injury in October, and I, I, want, you know, I wanted to get him to, to Cheltenham on January the 1st, just to, to get him out. And I, I definitely underdid him. Um, he'd only schooled twice. I hadn't been really hard on him at home. You sort of get in there and you think, um, you know, you think you'll get away with it. You know, to, to run well, and he was just very rusty. But uh, he came back from that, and I was able to get stuck into him. Um, we haven't missed a day, or hadn't missed a day since Cheltenham, and uh, yeah, and he put that well behind him and put up a great performance yesterday. Yeah, he, I mean, he surely did. I, I was saying it was a good ride from Gavin getting the inside rail, but as soon as he got him to the inside up the home straight, the writing was on the wall. He was really tanking, and the others were were going nowhere. It, because he looked a horse with a... I mean, he is a horse with a bit of class. Do you think we sort of don't realise just how strong a stayer he is? Yeah, very much so. Um, I think yesterday was... Yeah, he, he did it very well, but I think there's plenty more to come. Um, he's that typical stayer's type of horse where he, he sort of a 
we, we, we would call it, he sort of runs behind the bridle, he, he hits a few flat spots and he, he's very relaxed in his races, but Gavin said as soon as you want him, he almost gets there too quick, you have to be careful, um, he's got to turn a foot, he's a, he's a thorough stayer, he obviously loves soft ground, but he's, he's got form on good ground as well. Um, and the exciting thing, he's only six, so at the moment I don't think we've, we've seen anywhere near what he could get to. So with that in mind, and with obviously massive respect to the favourite, do you think that you could almost play Paisley Park at his own game? Um, God, look, Paisley Park looks, he looks awesome and he's got better and better. Um, but yesterday gave us, a, you, know, we're, we're, you know, we're back in the game as it were. Um, he put up a, a great performance. Um, I think in you know almost he, they went a good gallop yesterday, which is good because it, it sort of made sure we had a proper test. Um, but he, he's he's got everything you want this horse. He, he's a very you know he cruises through his races, does hit flat spots, but he never looks like he's in trouble. Gavin knows him very very well, um, and the stairs hurdle for me would be you know okay it's he didn't perform at the track the last time but I, I think that's more him rather than the track but you know it's, it, you need to stay very well you need a touch of class and um, he seems to tick all the boxes when Gavin was in the luck on Sunday hot seat last week he talked a lot about winning the stairs hurdle for you world hurdle as it was then on, on Cole Harden and it might be sacrilege to say but do you think this horse is better than Cole Harden? Uh, yeah, no, I, I wouldn't say that. They're totally different horses. Cole Harden was one of them horses that if you, whenever you raced him, he'd go out there and literally he'd put his life on the line for you. Um, he was very unusual for a stare that, you know, he could go out and he'd just give you everything, whereas this horse is, is totally different. Um, you know, would this horse probably, he'd probably have, without being rude, he'd probably just have a bit more class because he's, he does everything so easy, whereas Cole Harden, he'd come out every morning and um, give you everything he'd got, whereas this lad is basically asleep most of the time. Um, but yeah, he's, he's, a, he's a great horse to have in the yard, he, he's very exciting, it's great for the owners, the first horse they bought, um, and yeah, they're having a lot of fun with him. And how's La Bagawa doing? Yeah, La Bagawa is great, yeah, she's come out of uh, Leopardstown very well. Um, yeah, just I, I stated I was a bit frustrated. You know, they watered the ground after rain had come in the morning, and that's never ideal. Um, but you know, I was uh, I was a small guy over there, and they weren't going to do it to suit me, were they? So um, yeah, you, I think you were in a minority there. Yeah, just a bit. And I think if I uh, if I started saying no, don't do that, I, I know exactly what they would have said. You'd have been back. You'd have been back on the ferry. Double <laughs> Um, but you know, look, she, I thought she ran a, uh, an amazing race, um, uh, probably one of her best races actually. And uh, yeah, she's come out well. And we'll we'll look now. I'm, I'm sort of uh, thinking of the idea of maybe going down a handicap route now off one four nine. Mm, okay, and which handicap? Uh, I'm not sure. Um, well, she'll, she, she'll be in at Cheltenham. She'll be in the ultimate, and I might put her in the plate as well. Um, and. If I don't go to Cheltenham, then I might look at Aintree and I need to speak to owners, but you never know, the topper might even be in the mix. Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by Albasti at Cruel, Dubai. Nothing low quality about this year's Randog South Grand National waits for which were released this week with Tiger Roll allotted a mark of 170 by the BHA senior jumps handicapper Martin Greenwood who joins us on the line now. Martin, good morning. Good morning, Nick. How are you? I'm very well, thanks. I hope you've had a couple of days just to get over all the uh, excitement of the of the middle of the week. But it struck me that you were fairly relaxed about the whole scenario anyway. Uh, maybe, that, uh, maybe I was too relaxed and I was just trying to disguise it. <laughs> I think that's the way you've got to be, though, isn't it? As you said, you just have to get on with the job and ignore the surround sound. Yes, um, as I've alluded to on several occasions this week, I've, I've just tried to sort of treat the race as, as any normal race, but um, obviously realising it's the national and uh, sort of the discretion that goes along with it. And now connections have said of Tiger Roll that if he passes his test in the Boyne Hurdle and gets to Cheltenham and lines up in the cross-country, then all systems go for the Randox Health Grand National. I mean, do you breathe something of a sigh of relief having heard that, that you can all just move on now? Yes, 
I mean, I think it's extremely good for racing, full stop, that Tiger is going to run, uh, and I hope, obviously, he passes today's test uh, without incident. Um, I mean, it's what all racing fans want, in, you know, for the greatest steeplechase um, on the planet. Um, and I'm glad he's running, and I think it'll, it'll make a, for a fantastic race come April the 4th. Looking at that second page of weights is interesting, because Chris's dream won yesterday. Young horse on the upgrade. Ballyoptic, one of seven entries in the race for Nigel Twiston Davis, sluiced up uh, in bad ground at Ascot. Do you suddenly become fearful of, of them as, as major contenders? Yeah, uh, I mean, this is, the, this is just the way the race is, uh, Nick, in the fact that once the weights are published, obviously there's no penalties, uh, no horses can go up or down. Uh, just for an example, last year, uh, three quarters of the field, so uh, 30 out of the 40 runners were all due to go up or down um, from their natural weight. But that's just the way it is, isn't it? And it just adds further interest to the race, I believe. I think it does. How impressed were you with those two horses yesterday? Yeah, um, I mean, obviously, Chris's dream was sort of stepping back in trip and, and probably didn't need to reproduce his, his figure 160 anyway, beating Shattered Love. But obviously, he's just proved his well-being and, and it's, it is an interesting horse. Barry Optic, you, you've got to argue, is probably a personal best there. Um, I mean, he won the Charlie Hall earlier in the year. But I would argue, I would argue this is probably as, as good as he's ever been. So, um, a great a great fillet for connections. In truth... It's normally horses that we haven't really considered that give the handicappers more of a problem when framing the Grand National weights than the obvious ones like Tiger Roll and what you do with compression, the entry factor and so on. Uh, did you have horses that you found hard to handicap this year? Um, I've got to be honest, Nick, it was fairly straightforward this year, taking aside the compression and, and trying to get everything in the weights as best I could. Um, last year we had the end of Bolger horse or Vergnat that, that gave me a bit of problem because it was a cross-country performer. But apart from the, the odd horse that's been lightly raced and been raising other hurdles, uh, Pleasant Company would be a good example, um, where he's slightly higher than the Irish mark due to sort of running in over the national centres recently. It's been fairly straightforward, so I'd, I'd probably say no. Have you taken much heat from anyone who's not called O'Leary? I've got to be honest, I've, I've taken none, no. It's been quite... It's been quite I'm a bit, a bit worried, actually, because if I had a character, <laughs> <laughs> you tend to think something's wrong. But no, it was, um, it's been relatively relatively quiet on that front. Uh, that is excellent news. Obviously, the middle section looks very, very long on quality and likely runners. Having assessed it again, where do you think the cutoff's likely to be? How, how, how could you consider yourself safe, do you think, this year? That's a really good question. I think that is the one question I've been asked most, actually. Um, the highest... Or I should say the, the highest, lowest, if you like, uh, of numbers on the list has been 59, which was about 2015 or 16. The average is about 71 on the list, about or 142. I think this year, because of the quality of the entries or the number of entries in the 140s and 150s, I think you're going to be looking at 145, wow. maybe slightly higher. I think 147, you should just be about OK, and anything below that, you, you're probably on the cusp. But of course, it does depend on horses being scratched and pulling out. And but yeah, one forty-five. I'm guessing. And who's going to win? <laughs> well, obviously, that's not a question for a handicapper. No, it's, it, no, it's not. A, it's not a question you would consent to answer. But it's one that I like to ask. <laughs> <laughs> if I, um, I mean, obviously, I, I used to be a punter when I was at Tangform, but obviously, I'm not allowed anymore. I think I'd just be concentrating on horses who have got you know decent recent national fence experience. Mm. I mean, the horse like walking the mill, obviously, has got obvious credentials because of his, his excellent beacher chase record. He's his good run last year. But I, I, think, I really honestly believe, and I'm not just saying this because I'm a handicapper, I do believe it's a really open race. I think there'll be 40 horses with absolutely an equal chance, thanks to the excellent handicapping <laughs> of the VHJ senior handicapper. Martin, thank you very much indeed. Thank you, Nick. Thanks for being there. Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by Albasti Equiwell Dubai. I'm delighted to welcome to the show this week Abdul Musa Adam. Uh, Abdul was born in Sudan. He managed to escape warfare in Sudan, warfare that had claimed the majority of his family. He escaped northern Sudan, then to Chad, then to Colonel Gaddafi's Libya. He rejected the entreaties of the Libyan government to fight in the Libyan Children's Army and as such suffered persecution 
and torture from which he then escaped thanks to the uh, extraordinary kindness of a French doctor who was working at the time in that country. He ended up in what he believes to have been Marseille, where he lived uh, rough until he was helped in Marseille by a man who took pity on him, and he then found his way underneath a lorry to Swindon, where he ended up. He then went through care system, the foster system. He found work with animals at the Greatwood Rehabilitation Centre, and ultimately he has ended up with a job in horse racing working at Kingsclear with the Andrew Balding Racing Stable, for whom he is enjoying an extraordinary and productive career. He has had dreams of being a jockey, whether those dreams are realised or not. He has come an incredibly long way in a remarkable journey, a journey that is being chronicled in a book to be released in April uh, with the assistance of journalist and author Roswin Jones, who has spent a lot of time in the Darfur area of Sudan and in Chad, where Abdul spent three years. Time for me to say a very good morning to Abdul, Musa, Adam and Roswin Jones. Thank you very much You're welcome. for joining us. And thank you, Ros, for being with us as well. It, it's a remarkable story, Abdul, and, and one that I, I couldn't really do justice summing up, but one which you and Ros have done a brilliant job of, of explaining in your book. How are you now and, and how are you enjoying the UK and, and Kingsclear? I am fine, thank you. Then I did enjoy King Clare, so I'm happy. You're happy now? Yes. One thing that strikes me reading your, your story is your connection with the animal, with animals. Tell me about where that started back in Sudan. Uh, my, farmer, my father, he has animals. We have cow, camel, horses, so a lot of animals we have. That's why I'm a start animal. And you always felt comfortable around animals and yes. wanted to be with the, the animals? Yes, I've been with animals. I'm so happy. And this was a, a very difficult and challenging period in Sudan when, when you were growing up. Um, just tell me a little bit about the, the earliest days that you can remember of your, of your childhood. Uh, when I grow up, a little child, my father, he got a lot of animals, cow and camel and horses. I was six years old, my father tried to teach me how to ride horses and animals. So, then, happened really bad things in Sudan. Then, I um, ran away in Sudan then with the child. So now it starts animal again. 2016 start animal. Calling place, calling Great World. And so that was the first contact you'd had with horses. Yes. Since you'd, yeah. you'd left Sudan. Yeah. Uh, Ros, you're very familiar with the area of Sudan that that Abdul is from. We saw a lot of news reporting of what was happening in Darfur, but I don't think we had any real understanding of the internecine warfare that was going on and, and how difficult it made it for families mm -hmm. like Abdul's. I mean, it's interesting at the moment, and I haven't had a chance to discuss this with Abdul, but um, uh, President Bashir, who was the president of Sudan, they've just said that he's, gonna, he's likely to go to the um, International Criminal Court at The Hague um, to stand trial for some of the crimes that were committed against families like Abdul's. Um, but during that time in Sudan, uh, when Abdul left, there was an incredible um, period of ethnic cleansing mm -hmm. uh, throughout Darfur, basically, and villages were just being decimated by um, helicopter gunships from the air, by the Janjaweed that would come on camels. They were just clearing huge areas, destroying villages, and obviously people like Abdul had no choice but to just walk off into the desert um, you know the journey that the first journey that Abdul made in the desert was incredible to have survived. It was incredible to survive his own the attack on his own village, which unfortunately has lost his mom and his dad and his sisters. He and his brother managed to escape to the border with Chad and then into the refugee camps there. But those refugee camps are like an absolute hell on earth. Really, they're they're nothing much more than a few sticks in the desert and 
some supplies of water, and there's about a million people that are marooned kind of along that border. So lots of people went to Libya, and that was, you know, just to try and get some work or just to try and not be a refugee in a camp for the rest of your life. So, I, I mean, for me, meeting Abdul's been one of the great privileges of my life, really. He's, he's an absolute inspiration to me. And initially, Abdul, you, you managed to escape with your, your younger brother, Yusuf, but you became parted along the way because you, being older, had to go and work and, and seek a, a way out, in a sense. Just tell me a little bit about, about Yusuf. Uh, I tried to escape with him. Uh, sometime, that time I was a child. I can't manage it. I'll present two present me one calling lady calling Zainab. That's lady saying, I can look after your brother. Mm-hmm. You can stay other guy calling a boat. Yes. So a boat, I escaped with him in Libya because that would refugee come in the chart. Then it's, it's not too safety. Sometimes a refugee come is bombing as well. Then me and a boat, we left chart, then we crossed the desert in Libya. Also in Libya, it's really awful time as well. It's Gaddafi bombing, we catching like a lot of difficult time. Then I prison in six, six, six months. They try to have been army enjoy. I say no. This is one of the most powerful parts of your story, for me, and, and the story that you've you've written together. How old were you when when you went to Libya? Uh, I was 12 years old. You were still only 12 years old? Yeah. You'd lost your parents and other members of your family. You'd separated from your brother. Uh, I lost my parents. I was six years old. Yeah. So at age 12, you go to Libya. And you... The refugee come uh, three years. Hmm. That and in in Chad. Yeah. And, and Colonel Gaddafi's government eventually captured you and said to you, we want you to become part of the child child army in Libya. And you had the strength of character. Yeah, because my, my family had been really bad. I saw that. That's army they does in Gaddafi. So I think, no, that's why. Because you'd seen what war had done to your family yes. at six. You rejected being a part of any militia or fighting force no. at the age of 12. Yeah. And, Ros, the consequences of that are incredibly, incredibly grave. Yes. I mean, I think the plight for black Africans um, in Libya at that time, and actually that continues to now in the absolute chaos that's happening at the moment, is almost horrendous because the rebel armies believe that most black Africans are mercenaries, so you're persecuted by that side. Mm-hmm. Um, and, the you know, the government troops are trying to... Uh, basically conscript black Africans to join their army so that people were just trapped in the middle. You were going to be persecuted by one side or the other. So, in fact, Abud, who um, Abdul escaped with, he was really taken off in the end by rebels who Mm. thought he was a conscript, whereas Abdul was imprisoned and, you know, and tortured. And at the age of 12... In, in a prison, I mean, it's absolutely unthinkable the things that happened to him there and the things that g- are going on in mm. torture centres in, in Libya now where we can't see into those prisons. You know, we don't know what's... Nobody's got any idea, really, what's happening inside those places apart from... That's why the testimony of somebody like Abdul is so important and powerful. Luck on Sunday. Proudly sponsored by Albasti at Cruel Dubai. You've been listening to the Luck on Sunday podcast, the weekly digest of the best bits from Luck on Sunday, the programme that brings you the best guests and insights from around the racing world.